Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Michael Higdon. And I'm Lindsay Zions. Severe weather has been widespread and deadly today across the southeast. UF meteorologist Jeff Huffman joins us with the latest and a preview of your forecast. Michael, there's been over 300 reports of wind damage and 10 reports of tornadoes just in the past 24 hours across the Mid-South and the South and East. This is a widespread event and a significant cold front is on its way. There will be some impact from this system in North Central Florida, but not in the form of severe weather. We have a wind advisory in effect right now. Winds out ahead of the front away from the thunderstorm storms could gust up to 40 miles per hour and that could cause some minor damage this evening. We'll be tracking that throughout the night. We'll have the very latest on when that rain will arrive and how cold it will be tomorrow morning coming up during the show. And we'll hear back from you later, correct? Yes. Perfect. Thanks, Jeff. Governor Rick Scott will propose a billion dollar plus boost to education spending for the next fiscal year. He'll release his budget plan tomorrow, but he gave reporters a preview today at the Associated Press Legislative Planning Day at the Capitol. The budget I announced tomorrow will include an increase of $1.2 billion in funding for K-12 public schools. That's right. Scott has also proposed a $2,500 raise for full-time teachers. That's after cutting K-12 spending by $1.3 billion two years ago and adding $1 billion back last year. Legislative leaders were cautious. House Speaker Will Weatherford said there may be a budget surplus, but not enough for comfort. We do have more revenue, but let me be clear, our budget surplus is breathing room. Uh, It's not enough room to put your feet up on the couch. Senate President Don Getz said Florida should see what Congress does about federal spending before making any decisions about the state budget surplus. The Alachua County School Board welcomes Governor Rick Scott's proposal of a $1.2 billion spending increase in K-12 schools. Alachua County School Board member Eileen Roy says after years of underfunding, every increase helps students and staff. Things until um, our funding is increased um, to allow people to do uh, a thorough job and not just the Band-Aid. Roy says Alachua County schools are in need of more workers and the proposed aid could lessen the problems of understaffing. She adds teachers' salaries have not increased in years. So our teachers are working harder for less money and we really need to give them um, something to show that we value them, which we do. Roy says the school board is grateful for any spending increase, but is eager to see how much money the legislature gives to education. Governor Rick Scott announced a new development in his $10,000 college degree challenge today. All 23 colleges in the state of Florida have signed on. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM Lauren Verno has more. Governor Rick Scott announced today that all 23 of Florida state colleges are signing on to his $10,000 bachelor degree program. Santa Fe in particular is looking to offer this low-cost program for public safety degrees. Santa Fe College President Jackson Sasser says these degrees are not only meant for public officials looking to go back to school, but also as a beginning path for students graduating from high school. We're also looking at at someone that, that, you know, maybe a student, maybe graduated from high school and looking at going into one of these agencies. And then that's what's guaranteed, the full experience, the associate degree and the baccalaureate degree will not exceed, the cost to the student will not exceed $10,000. Santa Fe student Dale Hendricks says this program is not only going to impact the community, but has a special impact on her own family. Oh, I I think it it will definitely give people an opportunity, a wonderful opportunity, because like I said, you know, schooling is very important. You know, it, it took me years 
too, a lot of people don't figure that out at a young age, which I, which I think is such, you know, a crime. I mean, I think it's getting better, you know, but I mean, even at my, you know, when I was younger, my education was not that important. So, you know, I'm trying to, I have a, I have a child now that's 18 and married and with a baby. And, um, you know, I tried to bestow in him, you know, I got my GD when I was 30 just to show him, see, look, you should keep your education. See, mom went back to school. So, you know, and now I'm in college and I'm trying to get him, even though he has a baby, to go back to college. And, um, you know, with, with programs that are going to be, you know, more affordable, I think that's going to be an amazing help. Because then people are going to realize, hey, I can afford to do this now. You know, because everybody, you know, nowadays with the way things are going, you know, people don't want to work. You know, a lot of people say, oh, well, I can't find a job. Well, no, you can find jobs. People just don't want the jobs that are out there. Nobody wants to spend their life for minimum wage at McDonald's. You know, you just don't want to. And, and so that's part of the problem. So if you can go to college and you can make more money and, you know, and you don't have to pay bukus of money to do it, it's, it's definitely going to be a plus. And, I mean, in the areas around here, there are a lot of low-income neighborhoods in Gainesville, quite a few, you know, that, that I've seen that I've actually had to live in. So, I mean, if you can get those people off of welfare and into college, you know, I think that would be wonderful. You know, get them to actually do something to better their life instead of staying in the rut of waiting on a check every month from the government. Sasser agrees with Dale on the fact that this program is going to help get more people in the community back to school. Well, I, I just think in recognition of Santa Fe's commitment to keeping tuition uh, as low as possible and keeping uh, the college accessible. Uh, if you don't get started, you know, it doesn't matter. So it's programs like this that uh, pave the way for students uh, to begin. So we're very supportive of the governor's uh, program and look forward to, to celebrating the successes of students through this program in, in several months. The reason the school chose the public safety degree was because to Sasser, no one deserves this help more than the people who help protect us in the community every day. Well, I think serious you know, having commitment, uh, certainly having the, the academic preparation, you know, to be successful, uh, to have the motivation. Uh, and, and most uh, individuals that go into public service are very serious students, so uh, the completion rate of most uh, students in these areas uh, is very high. And so uh, one of the reasons that we select this, the need of, of public service in the area for this degree, and then uh, because we feel like students will take advantage of it and be successful. This program is going to be implemented in Santa Fe this fall. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Lauren Verno. The Alachua County Coalition for the Homeless and Hungry Annual Survey reports the number of homeless people in Gainesville may have dropped. Director, Director Teresa Lowe says although she's not yet sure the results reflect this conclusion, she is certainly hopeful. We went out, we did our, our count, um, you know, we, it, it appears that we found fewer people than last year. I don't know if it's because of a change in the way we were doing our count or if we actually have fewer folks that are homeless. Um, hopefully it's the latter, but we won't really know what, what all the answers are until we have a chance to really look up the numbers. Lowe adds there are a few things to look at when receiving the results of the count. We will look at the raw numbers, the, the absolute numbers of people that are homeless, both sheltered and unsheltered. And then we'll also look at um, details, how many of our people were veterans, how many are families, how many are children, that type of 
that will help to inform our decisions as we move forward as to what grants to apply for, where to set our priorities, um, what should be our goals for the coming year. Lowe says once the numbers are in, they will be used to evaluate and mend the current system. Well, once we know the numbers, then we'll know where we need to target new programs, if we need new programs, or if the programs we currently have are effective and are addressing um, the needs that we identified through the survey. Lowe anticipates the results will be available to the public by mid-February. Marion County officials are continuing to investigate a case in which a citrus man was charged with meth trafficking. Marion County Sheriff's Office Public Information Officer Judge Cochran says officials found evidence that drugs were being manufactured in the home the man was seen leaving. Well, when they arrived at this at this uh, address off of Highway 316, two white males exited the front of the home and took off, and they basically started running. That's a suspicious action. So they were able to um, chase these guys down, and once they started to have a conversation as a part of protocol, they did check the pockets uh, and found uh, some suspicious white substance in the pocket of one of the, uh, the, the defendants, specifically Eric uh, in this case, and, uh, and just great police work at that point. Just fired. They started um, asking more questions, and, and at one point they were able to uh, get to the home, and they, were, they found some uh, additional evidence that led the experienced uh, deputies and sergeants to, to realize that uh, drugs were being manufactured at the home. The men have been identified as William Thompson and Eric Heinemann, both 37 years old. Officials detained the men and other people found at the home. Others detained said Thompson made meth and had placed items used to make the drug throughout the home. Once they're on the scene, they, they do look at the existing evidence. They talk to witnesses, and when I say witnesses, it can also be the suspects. And when they have those conversations, they develop enough information and evidence to, to charge the, the, the appropriate charge. Officials found meth in a container under a sink at the back of the home and gallon Ziploc bags containing meth in the closet of a bedroom identified as Thompson's room. Thompson said he uses meth but does not manufacture the drug. Local activist groups are reacting to the Boy Scouts' consideration of making a change to their policy of not allowing openly gay members. Communications Director of Scouts for Equality, Justin Bickford, says this is a good news for those in favor of change. This is a huge step forward for the Boy Scouts, even just announcing publicly that they're going to be considering this policy change. So we're, we're definitely very grateful for, for the announcement and the consideration. Although Scouts for Equality is thrilled for this change, it is not exactly what they hoped for. Bickford says, also says the policy isn't airtight. It is a major milestone for BSA. Instead of discrimination being forced upon all of the people within scouting, the option to discriminate would be given instead. So it would not be an ideal solution for us, but it is definitely an enormous step in the right direction. Bigford is also an Eagle Scout and has grown up in the Scouts his whole life. He says hopefully this change will not make a lot of people change their views of the Scouts in a negative way because it is an invaluable resource for one major group of people. We know how much it has to offer and how valuable a resource it can be for all children. And we're really, really hopeful that that opportunity is going to be open to all children in the near future. The final decision from the Scouts is set to be made sometime in February. We're now joined live by University of Florida forecaster Damian Siebersad. So, Damian, we've seen a lot of tornadoes in Georgia. Are we going to have any of that coming our way? 
Um, no, Lindsay, uh, I don't think they were, we're going to see any tornadoes here in North Central Florida. Those were associated with a very strong cold front that is going to be making its way through our area later this evening. There were some fatalities in Georgia and some wind gusts as high as 85 miles an hour in Rome, Georgia. Now, we won't be seeing gusts quite as high as that, but it has been busy here all day, and winds will be picking up later with some sustained winds at about 20 miles an hour and gusts reaching as high as 40 miles an hour. We remain under wind advisory here in North Central Florida until about 8 p.m. tonight, and there may even be some down trees later on this evening as you head out on the roads. There will also be a brief chance of a shower at around 10 to 11 tonight, but that should be relatively brief. Now, once that front passes through, we are going to see some much colder weather. Skies will be clearing around 2 uh, a.m. tomorrow morning with a low of about 46 when you head out the door tomorrow, so you definitely want to grab a jacket. It's also going to be much cooler tomorrow with a high right around 60 degrees, breezy at times here in Gainesville. Coming up at WFT-TV First News at 5, I'll have a full forecast and let you know when it's going to get warmer. Back to you guys. All right. Thanks, Damien. You are listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. We'll be right back. Support for WUFT is provided by Denise Manjardo and Cheryl Hartley at Prudential Trend Realty. Denise and Cheryl work with sellers and buyers in the real estate market, both residential and commercial. Additional information available at deniseandcheryl.com. Participants are needed for a University of Florida study on shingles pain to understand the mechanisms of this condition, also known as post-herpetic neuralgia. Eligible volunteers must be at least 120 days or four months after the outbreak of the rash, be 50 years of age or older, and fluent in English. Volunteers will be compensated for their time. More information is available at 352-273-6721. Welcome back. Today is the third annual Florida Library Snapshot Day, where libraries across the state collect information to determine how the majority of people are using public libraries. Marketing and Public Relations Manager for the Alachua County Library District, Nikki Cordes, says there is a reason for the event's seemingly random title. It is organized to be a day in the life of a library, so you want to take a panoramic snapshot across the state of what's happening at our libraries. Cordis adds there are a variety of events happening at the library today. Alachua is also having a poetry reading this afternoon. Uh, Lola Haskins is visiting, so they will take pictures of that event. Um, those are programs that they've scheduled that just happen to fall on this. Cordis says Snapshot Day allows libraries to work on anything that visitors feel need to be improved. It's an opportunity for us all to um, focus our energies on collecting comments from our patrons and feedback on what we're doing and how we can do it better. And at the same time, it's an opportunity for us to uh, give patrons an opportunity to tell what they like about their libraries. Cordis adds taking part in such a large event helps impact libraries throughout the state. Participating in Snapshot Day gives us a chance to be part of a statewide collection mm-hmm. that um, we don't get to do, uh, that we're not involved in every day. And the Florida Library Association shares that information uh, on its website and sends it on to Tallahassee um, to share with our elected officials so that we can collectively show data. This event is presented by the Florida Library Association. 
Gainesville residents can look forward to new and improved police headquarters without fear of taxpayer debt. Demolition of the 60-year-old Gainesville Police Department headquarters building is scheduled for the end of this week. In its place will rise a new headquarters where all members of Gainesville PD will be housed in one location. The Gainesville City Commission has decided that starting construction from scratch would be a better option than renovating an old building from the 1950s. Spokesperson for Gainesville PD, Ben Tobias, said the old building was no longer a suitable work environment. Well, what's wrong with the old building, plain and simple, is that it's structurally unsound. Um, the original plan in uh, late 2010 was to go in and renovate the building. Um, it, it was getting outdated and uh, just getting to the point where we needed to, to refresh a, a lot of stuff inside of it. Um, so we actually began that project, and uh, when some of the engineers got in and started peeling back walls, we realized that uh, there were some serious structural issues. There was asbestos present. And uh, so we kind of had to shelf that project and go back and speak to uh, the city commission again. And we started looking at the numbers and realized that it was going to cost way more to try to renovate a structure such as this uh, rather than just, you know, completely demolishing it and starting from scratch. So that's that's where we are at this point. Um, it's been a long time coming, but we're finally getting close to seeing, you know, some real progress on the new building. For the past year and a half, the members of GPD have been scattered throughout the city, working in trailers, office buildings, and out of their cars. Tobias also says that having one building will help to streamline work and save drive time. Because uh, right now, whenever we have to, um, for example, if I need to get some information from detectives, I'm, I'm getting in my car, I'm traveling across town, and, uh, uh, you know, some of those things you can't just do over the telephone. You need to do face-to-face -face meetings. So having everybody under one roof again will be fantastic, not only for morale, because right now our patrol officers don't really have a home. Um, you know, they're working out of their cars, and they have, uh, you know, a, some space that's being temporarily used for them, but they don't have a home. And, you know, you can imagine not having a place to go and, and, and sit down and do some work is frustrating at times. Uh, so having everybody under one roof will also be a huge morale boost for everyone that works for the department. He adds that construction at the site is planned to begin immediately after the demolition and should not put the city in debt or raise any taxes. Uh, most of it is raised. There are, I think there's $3.5 million of the entire project that is being pulled from reserves. Uh, according to the city manager, uh, the entire construction project is going to be $10.9 million. Um, three, just about $4 million of that was the original pledge from the city um, to the construction when we were going to uh, just renovate it. Um, we also got $1.5 million from a federal law enforcement contraband forfeiture fund. In plain English, that's basically we can thank uh, drug dealers for uh, for funding $1.5 million worth of our building, uh, because that's money that's been seized in drug transactions and things of that nature. And then we also are getting $2 million from a bond that was issued by the city uh, in 2011. Uh, so all of that together, like I said, $3.5 million of that is going to come from some reserves. Gainesville locals can keep up to date on the building construction by going online to the Gainesville Police Department's website to see a picture of the day of the site. This Friday, the old Walmart on 13th Street is closing, and a new supercenter will be opening up on 5700 Northwest 23rd Street. The store manager, Cami Tate, says the new store will have a lot more to offer its customers. We now have the full line of groceries. We have fresh produce. We have a deli, bakery, meat department, full dairy assortment, and we also have um, a Walmart Vision Center. 
the new Walmart will be opening on Friday, February 1st. Gainesville City elections are not until March, but the qualification process for candidates has already begun. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leanna Scacchetti takes a look at what prospective candidates are doing this week as they prepare to run. During this week, all prospective candidates for Gainesville mayor and the District 4 City Commission seat can apply for qualification. Alachua County Supervisor of Elections Pam Carpenter explains that there are several things that the law requires prospective candidates to do before they can put their name on the ballot. During the qualifying week, the um, law actually requires that certain papers be filed and that qualifying fees be paid. So while candidates have declared that they're running for an office, in order to have their name appear on the ballot, they do need to complete the qualifying. And that's what's taking place this week. To run for mayor, the qualification requires candidates to pay a fee of about $404. And District 4 requires a fee of about $317 from candidates. Carpenter says, however, that there is a way for those who qualify to opt out of the fee. The city of Gainesville provides for an alternate method of qualifying in, in lieu of paying the qualifying fee a candidate can sign an undue burden affidavit and be able to run without paying the qualifying fee. For the elections coming up in March, there are currently two seats open. Candidates must meet certain residency requirements in order to run for these positions. The city has two seats open for this election. One is the mayor and the other one is the district for city commission seat. And in order to qualify, the city has a, in their charter and ordinances that you must have been a resident of the city for at least six months prior to qualifying in order to run for mayor. And if you are going to try to run for the District 4 seat, you would have needed to have been uh, living in that district for six months prior to qualifying. Now, there are some exceptions to that based on the fact that they redistricted this year. Carpenter says that Gainesville also has certain restrictions for voters looking to elect candidates to represent their district. Well, the way the city of Gainesville uh, is set up under their charter and, or and ordinances is that they are single-member district, which means that only those people who live within the district uh, are eligible to vote for candidates wanting to represent that district. Now, everyone in the city can vote on the mayor or at-large commission seats, but if it's a district election, only the people living within the boundaries of that district are eligible to vote on that particular seat. Carpenter adds that she wants to remind voters that elections are coming up soon, and they now have the opportunity to get to know their candidates. This is qualifying week, which means that at noon on Friday, we will have a complete list of all of the candidates, and um, they have the opportunity to, to begin to uh, educate themselves on the candidates and their position, so they'll be ready to come on out and vote. Carpenter says that anyone who wants to run for a position has until Friday at noon to complete the qualifications process. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Leanna Scacchetti in Gainesville. For the last 40 years, some of the most famous pictures from some of the most famous events in South Florida have come from the same Miami Herald photographer, Tim Chapman. After 40 years with the Miami Herald, he's finally retired and is leaving behind more than just a legacy. 
WLRN Miami Herald reporter Kenny Malone set out to help Tim solve a historic problem. You know, I've organized them into years and then months from that. In a small house in West Miami-Dade, Tim Chapman has nearly filled his guest bedroom with cardboard storage boxes. I'll show you a couple of years. Tim estimates that he's shot upwards of three quarters of a million frames in his 40-year career with the Miami Herald. He's obsessively archived photos, negatives, slides, even old newspapers. And now, piled maybe seven feet high, are teetering cardboard box walls that contain photos of some of the biggest events in South Florida history. This is Marielle, right here, the first slide. Tim holds up a color slide of an iconic photo he took during the Marielle boat lift in 1980. On a box off to the side is a newspaper with another one of Tim's most famous photographs on the front page. In 1978, he was one of the first journalists to arrive on the scene of the mass suicide in Jonestown, Guyana. I didn't tell anybody it was leaving. I just went to the airport, and my wife at the time uh, called. That's probably why she's not my wife anymore, you know. She called for me to bring some milk home. And one of the photographers said, well, uh, Ms. Chapman, he, he, he's in South America. When you hear Tim Chapman's stories, he starts to sound part photojournalist, part action hero. In documenting foreign affairs, he's had guns pointed at him. A helicopter he was in was shot down. But arguably the most important history he's documented is right back in Miami during the city's formative years. It's the prepubescent to loss of innocence to dysfunctional adult period that Tim has in his collection. Filmmaker Billy Corbin directed the documentary Cocaine Cowboys. He's the only person that Tim has ever let go through his entire archive. Tim was the photographer for the Miami Vice era. He's legendary for living with a police scanner on his hip. In 1980, Tim overheard on the scanner that a fire rescue truck with a ladder was needed at the Mutiny Hotel, ground zero for cocaine cowboys. And what had happened was is that these two guys had rented a very expensive 10th floor suite and spent days on end freebasing cocaine. And they got bugged out and paranoid and they filled the giant beautiful tub with cash and lit it on fire for some reason. The two guys, one of them half naked, were attempting to climb down the side of the building balcony by balcony. Tim got there in time to photograph much of the descent thanks to his famous police scanner and his infamous driving. He was known to drive on sidewalks, to drive across lawns. So there were people who just wouldn't get in a car with him. Author Carl Hyacin is a longtime friend of Tim Chapman. They worked together starting in the 70s. Hyacin says Tim is a rare mix. He's a grizzly bear when it comes to getting the shot. And yes, there are stories of those who got in the way. But Tim also understood he was documenting something unique. It's rare when you have a photographer who spends his entire career in one city, and even more rare if it's the place where he grew up. And so this is a, an archive that's invaluable. The police scanner, the questionable driving habits, and the general rabidity made Tim the right guy at the right time to document a particularly gritty part of Miami's history, all of which is stored in his spare bedroom. In this room are the events that shaped Miami-Dade County and actually the hemisphere, whether it be the Cuban exodus or Jonestown, Guyana, and this needs to be saved for, for our history. Tim's planning on moving to the Keys, where he spent years hand-building a house to withstand 300-mile-per-hour winds. What that house cannot handle is the space it takes to store the Chapman archives. So here's the deal, Tim says. If there's an institution that's willing to store and ideally help digitize this collection, he will gladly donate the entire thing. I'm Kenny Malone in Miami. 
A state law passed last year increasing the penalties for failure to report suspected child abuse. As Florida Public Radio's Sasha Cordner reports, a child abuse awareness advocate partnered with child welfare officials to make sure Floridians are aware of the signs. Under a previous state law, only caregivers like parents and legal guardians were required to report the abuse of a child under their care. But now with a new law that passed and went into effect last year, there are tougher penalties in place to make sure all abuse is reported. For example, a person who knowingly fails to report known or suspected child abuse could now face a third-degree felony charge instead of a first-degree misdemeanor. They could also face a $5,000 fine. And today, our call volume's up about 16%. We see, receive about 500 calls a month related to uh, people hearing about or witnessing abuse and calling, calling that abuse in. Florida Department of Children and Family Secretary David Wilkins says since the law took effect last year, the Florida Abuse Hotline is now hearing about more reports of abuse. But he says every day thousands of child abuse goes unreported, which is why his department is working to make the public more aware through public service announcements like this one. If I suspect a child's being harmed, I commit. I'll report it. Even if I don't have all the details. I'll take a step to protect the child. I commit my eyes, my voice, to protect our children. The Don't. PSA is part of a multimedia campaign called Don't Miss the Signs, spearheaded by Lauren Book, a childhood abuse survivor herself, who says she wants to make sure Floridians really don't miss the signs of an abused child. For example, is school-aged children. If a child is missing school, if a child is in school and withdrawn, if they startle easily, if they were at one point completely potty trained and now have regressed and are wetting the bed, sucking their thumb, show regression in age, those are a lot of signs that something is up and that you need to look into reporting something that you may suspect is going on. Book says through campaigns like Don't Miss the Signs and her other one, Save for Smarter Kids, which educates kids about child abuse, she still feels there's more to be done. We spend zero time before Safer Smarter Kids came along educating our children in prevention. Pedophiles spend 100% of their time thinking about how they are going to fend against our children. Now, I was never good at math, but I know that's not good math. And we need to do more. It's our duty and our obligation. In addition to PSAs, Floridians will soon see billboards and posters as part of the Don't Miss the Signs campaign. Book is also encouraging Floridians to sign an online pledge on the website don'tmissthesigns.org. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Kortner. As in most presidential elections, hardly a day passed without one of the candidates or their surrogates visiting Florida last year. And that often brought NPR's White House correspondent Ari Shapiro to the Sunshine State, covering the Romney campaign. Ari Shapiro's latest visit was just last week, when WUSF's Bobby O'Brien caught up with him at USF's Lifelong Learning Academy on the Sarasota Manatee campus. Shapiro looks back at 2012 and ahead to 2016. It is so nice to be back in Florida when there are no political ads on TV. <laughs> you had how many visits here during the presidential campaign? I lost count, but I have to say it was always so nice after being in flat, snowy Ohio and Iowa and freezing cold New Hampshire to come to Florida. I was so happy this was a swing state. It was like for the mental health of all of the political reporters, being able to come here on the campaign trail was always a pleasure. Was it just the weather or was it also the peculiarities that Florida has become known for? Florida is an amazing place to be a reporter because of the peculiarities, but 
but honestly, I'm just talking about the weather. There were some interesting peculiarities as well. For example, I remember being in Daytona Beach with Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan on the weekend of Biketoberfest, which was a big motorcycle rally. And I did a story about the gender gap, why white men tend to favor Romney and Ryan. People talked a lot about why women favored Obama and Biden, but I did a story about the other side of the gender gap, and it was great talking to these, you know, big, burly, leather-clad, tattooed biker dudes about politics, only in Florida. Only in Florida, too. Romney had a lot of visits here, but this is also where he had several missteps. Can I see if I can think of some of them? Okay. he had some of my friends are NASCAR team owners here. That was one of the ones here, right? The 47% video was a fundraiser in Florida. I mean, those have got to be like the top two on the list. Okay, what else is on the list? I also, too, am unemployed. Tampa oh, right, Roundtable. Right, right, right. That was early in the campaign. I, too, am unemployed. And also, this is where he's saying, God bless America. Oh, yes, at the villages. And, you know, there were even smaller things. I was remembering uh, he did an event in front of a foreclosed house in Naples, Florida. And before he arrived... A DJ was playing music, and one of the songs they played was Celebrate Good Times. And I thought, that does not seem to be the right musical choice for this event in front of a foreclosed home. How would you characterize his campaign in Florida? There were very specific niche ways that he campaigned in Florida. So when he was in South Florida, he was always with Marco Rubio. There was always at least one event that was clearly directed towards Hispanic voters. When he was in the panhandle, he would campaign with country music singers. Uh, On the Space Coast, it was something else. On the Gulf Coast, it was yet something else. At the Villages, Paul Ryan, I remember, campaigned with his mother in the Villages. And so one of the things that's so amazing about Florida is that it contains so many worlds. And the campaign really tried to niche market to each of those worlds to win the entire state, which ultimately they, of course, failed to do. Do you think that was a surprise to them on election night? Yes. There's this big narrative that they believed they were going to win. And I think that narrative is sort of overstated. But I do think they truly believed they were going to win Florida. Florida could have two native sons or one of two native sons on the ticket. Yeah. Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, and I think, you know, either one would help Republicans carry Florida, certainly. What do you see a ticket in 2016 looking like? I think we have passed the point where any major party can have a ticket of two white men. I even asked the question in 2012, after Romney named Paul Ryan to the ticket in their first week campaigning together, they went to Miami and they campaigned with Marco Rubio at El Palacio de los Jugos, this Cuban juice place in Miami. And I did a story asking the question, is a ticket of two white men a disadvantage in 2012? And I had no idea then how prescient that would be. But in fact, it really was a disadvantage. And I don't think we'll see it again. That was WUSF's Bobby O'Brien speaking with NPR's White House correspondent, Artie Shapiro. The University of Florida TEACH program encourages students to become math and science teachers. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Maggie Schwartzman reports on how funds from the National Science Foundation helps the program provide new scholarships. The National Science Foundation is granting $1.2 million to the University of Florida in hopes of creating more teaching jobs for STEM majors that is, science, technology, engineering, and math majors. The funding will allow UF's College of Education to start offering scholarships and hands-on training to prepare STEM majors for teaching careers in Florida's high-need middle and high schools. The UF TEACH program allows enrolled students to pursue their science or math major while also pursuing a minor in education. UF professor and associate dean of academic affairs and science education Tom Dana says the UF TEACH program helps students receive an education that allows them to become qualified teachers in STEM subjects. 
the UF Teach program is a degree that we created at the University of Florida so that people who are undergraduates majoring in math and science can pick up an undergraduate minor in the College of Education to fulfill their professional education requirements. So undergraduates can complete their studies at UF with a major in a discipline area and a minor in education so that they can be ready to go teach math or science. Dana says this is the biggest donation the UF Teach program has seen since its commencement in 2008. Uh, the program is started in 2008, and we had funding from ExxonMobil and the National Math and Science Initiative to get started. Uh, that funding is now over, and we're looking for additional ways of supporting the program. Uh, we never had scholarships this large available before, so we're really pleased that uh, the National Science Foundation thinks the program is worthwhile, and we hope we can attract uh, more students to, uh, to the program now. Dana says the goal of the UF Teach program is to increase the number of science and math teachers and to keep them teaching for as long as possible. So the ultimate goal of the program is to increase the number of math and science teachers who both leave the University of Florida and want to teach and try to keep them in teaching for a while. Um, there's a retention problem with teachers in math and science disciplines that they don't, a lot of them don't stay for very long. So through this program, we hope to be able to promote, um, i say it differently, so through this program, we expect that we can graduate uh, great UF students who are going to go on and continue to teach uh, math and science to kids in Florida schools. Over the next five years, UF will use this money to award NOIS scholarships worth $10,000 to each of the 50 undergraduate students in the UF Teach program. Dana says these scholarships will allow students to focus on their internships without having to worry about finances. Dana thinks the NSF grant will have great benefits on Florida's education system. Being a math and science or science teacher is a great way of improving the conditions for the lives of kids in schools around our state, and I think contributing to the workforce needs in the state is something else that uh, UF can do really well. The program will begin immediately. The first students this semester will receive $10,000 scholarships, and there will be summer internships available for 18 students who will receive scholarships of $5,000. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Maggie Schwartzman in Gainesville. The former neighborhood watch captain charged with fatally shooting Trayvon Martin wants more time to prepare his case. Attorneys for George Zimmerman filed a motion Wednesday asking that his second-degree murder trial be pushed back from its scheduled start in June. An immunity hearing in which Zimmerman will argue that he was acting in self-defense had been scheduled for April. Spokesman Sean Vincent says Zimmerman's legal team would like the trial to be moved to November. Zimmerman is pleading not guilty. Zimmerman's attorney is asking the public to help pay for his defense. Marco Mira says his goal is to raise $30,000 a month. Thanks for tuning in into the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Michael Higdon. And I'm Lindsay Zions.